I want to share some things with you. We're going to be reading especially from Matthew 16, so if you want to find that. Um, I started to entitle this, uh, We Need to Exercise More. But I think some of you, you would take the wrong, you take that wrong. Um, you know, we, uh, we're, we're at a, a point in our life where Brenda and I got a, a thing from Blue Cross telling us we get free uh, at an exercise place. Do you get that? So we are without excuse. <laughs> um, but I, I, I was going to say, if I used that, I, I decided not to use that as my title. We needed to exercise more. But it... It is connected to what I'm going to share. I think we need to exercise our mind more. And that means being intentional. A word that Brad used this morning in our staff meeting about his approach to this year. And and we had a really good staff meeting, really good prayer time. I preached uh, Sunday on the, the three-fold focus of this year, uh, the centrality of Jesus, um, the absolute necessity of the cross, and worship, our entering into a deeper way of worshiping Him. Um, I say that this year uh, should be that year, but it, that should be any year, right? <laughs> what what I said today is not necessarily for 2018. That's just life. That that fits any time frame, right? And most of the time when we have these new years, we decide the year to be a year of the miraculous. Well, it should be a year of the miraculous. It should be the year of salvation. It should be the year of restoration. It should be the year of redemption, of reconciliation. It should be the year of prayer, of greater devotion, of evangelizing the lost, encouraging people as Dr. Elko really kind of started this year off with his Monday morning cup of inspiration to be be an encourager, take time to speak to people, to see where people are struggling, and uh, befriend them, help them, and reach out to them. So I'm not talking about something that we just should start now. We should be doing that all along. But I think we can. At the start of the year is a good time for us to kind of stop, refocus, and regroup and say, boy, I need to pay more attention to that. Here's one of the words that came to me as this year started, and just my own personal approach to some things, and it's the word reconstruct. That that uh, I think the Lord spoke to me to reconstruct how you do life, how you do your mornings. And my mornings is really probably one of the most special time of my day because I, I just get to be alone with the Lord, uh, turn music on, worship Him, and um, but there's a few things that I needed to adjust after that to give my mind more to the follow up of that and not turn on Fox News and see what's happening because <laughs> usually it's not encouraging. So I, I like okay, Lord, I at this time in my life. Am I able to reconstruct what I'm used to doing? We're, we're creatures of habit, right? You know, you turn in a certain place when you're, you know, 
going somewhere and all of a sudden you're not supposed to go there, but you still turn there because he's like, this mindlessly turn there because that's where you're used to doing. I don't want to become that. I, I just want, I don't want to be just doing things because that's my habit. I want to say, how can I adjust that? So, uh, I believe it starts with, uh, thinking things through, you know, the, uh, impact verse, their, their theme verse, uh, really fits any time frame. Philippians 4, 8, you remember what he says there? Um, brethren, whatever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think, think. How good do we do that? (laughs) You know, if we would evaluate our thinking, oh, what am I thinking? (laughs) Is it whatever's true, whatever's honest, whatever's pure, you know, there is where we can reconstruct what are we going to give our minds to. You know, I've said it before. If I'm going to read something, I, if I'm going to take time to read something, I, I want to at least start with the idea that it might help me. <laughs> you know, it's just to me, that's what it is. Not, not to just read something for the sake of reading. I, if I'm wanting, I could pick up all kinds of things to read or go to my iBooks or whatever. And, but if I'm going to do it, do I think this is really going to help me and stretch me? Think on what? I believe you could say any of the things we talked about focus. Think on Jesus. Think on the cross. Think about worship. So let's take the cross tonight. How's that? Is that okay? Um, the most recognizable symbol of Christianity. Back here behind our baptistry. It's, it is the one thing that symbolizes Christianity. Is the cross. Just like the Star of David is a symbol of Judaism. The crescent is a symbol of Islam. Almost every every kind of conceivable uh, philosophy or, or religion has some kind of symbol. And that's ours back there. The cross. But I, I want to read something about what the cross meant at the time of Jesus not what it means to us you know I will cherish the cross Um, we have wonderful songs about the cross but the cross in our contemporary is a beautiful symbol in Jesus day it was not a beautiful symbol it was a symbol of agony and that you wanted to die any other way but that way it was the most horrific punishment. And John R.W. Stott wrote a, a book. It's a classic called The Cross of Christ. He's uh, from the United Kingdom. And uh, I want to I share some thoughts with you um, about the crucifixion viewed as the contemporary when, when it was being used to suffocate rebellion and revolt. And it was just... It was kept for the worst of, of criminals. And there was Jesus 
identified with the worst of the worst. Um, this is uh, taken from uh, Dr. Stott's book. Just listen up. Crucifixion seems to have been invented by the barbarians on the edge of the known world at the time. And it was taken over by the Greeks. Um, Alexander the Great used it as a way of intimidating people. Um, it helped, it helped uh, for people to know that, hey, let's go ahead and give up before he crucifies all of us. It's probably the most cruel method of execution ever practiced. It deliberately delayed death until maximum torture had been inflicted. The victim could suffer for days before dying. Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion, except in extreme cases of treason. Cicero wrote about the crucifixion, and he called it the most cruel and disgusting punishment. He went on to say to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? To crucify him is what? He said, there's no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. This was a secular philosopher in Roman times declaring that it should never, ever be used on a Roman citizen. It was too degrading. It was too horrific. And maybe that's why when Paul appealed his case to uh, Caesar that when he was condemned to death, it was not crucifixion because he was a Roman citizen. So more than likely, from what tradition says, he was beheaded, which was like a merciful death. It, anybody, anybody would take that any day over crucifixion because crucifixion was geared to make someone suffer for an extended period of time. And it was used as an intimidating factor not to... Uh, Challenge the authorities that were. Now remember in John 3, we're going to get to Matthew 16 in just a moment. You remember in John 3, Jesus is in a conversation with Nicodemus. And he said these prophetic words. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And he was talking about a picture of the cross. A serpent, a brazen serpent, put on a stake. And all that the, the people who were bitten by those serp, the, the poison serpents, all they had to do was look at that and they would be healed. And Jesus was telling Nicodemus, a teacher of Jewish people, that he was going to fulfill that. He was connected to that type Way back in Moses' day, he says, as Moses did that, so must. So he was, he was kind of giving people the indication that he was going to be an offering for the healing of people, for the healing of their souls. And one half of the gospel of John is based on the passion of the Christ. Mel Gibson did us an, an incredible gift when he did the passion of the Christ. But the night 
I sat there and watched it with Brenda sitting next to me. There was a point I put my hands over my face. Um, and I, I remember distinctly, it was during the flogging is when they turned him over. And, and I said, I can't watch it anymore. You know, it, 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 the whole thing was so horrific. We tried to do a little bit of the dramatization called the whip, hammer, and cross. And, and uh, we did our best to kind of depict the crucifixion. But, you know, you, you just can't go ahead and hurt people really bad. <laughs> but that movie gives us a, a snapshot into the horrific thing that happened to Jesus through his scourging and through the cross. I want to take you to Matthew 16 now. This is a very familiar um, encounter that Jesus had with his uh, apostles. And uh, it's, it's at Caesarea Philippi. It's in Galilee. And he's up there. And I think he's just maybe one of the feeding of the 5,000 had taken place. And so they're coming. This is verse 13. They come into the region of Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus asked them a question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. What about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell, gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered them. and, And this is... In both Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, then he ordered them not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. He put a gag order on them after that. But the story doesn't end there. Something else takes place right after that. And Matthew continues that in the next verse, verse 21. It says, from that time, listen to these words, from that time, from that moment, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and the third day be raised to life. We're going to look at Mark's rendering of that in in Mark 8, 31 in just a moment, but After he tells him, you're not to talk about this to anybody about who I am. But he begins to explain to them the end. What's going to happen? What's going to be the end of this? The end of this is that I'm going to suffer a lot of things at the hands of these people. And I will, they will kill me. And on the third day, I'll be raised again. Now, I don't know what part of that that Peter really heard the most, but I I think I could guess is that he'll be killed. I think maybe he missed the thing that he'll be raised up. 
Because he just, he breaks out and takes Jesus to task on what he just said. This is what he said. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And I I just believe that when he said, and they will kill me, that somewhere in all of that, it just wasn't an execution. I think somewhere in all of that, they knew what kind of death he was referring to. And Peter just that that just couldn't be that you can't that can't happen to you we're not going to allow that 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 just will never happen to you and you know what jesus said to him he said get the get behind me satan you are a stumbling block to me you do not have in mind the concerns of god but merely human concerns why did peter react the way he reacted i think it's because he understood pretty much what was going to happen to jesus and he didn't he didn't like that he That was revolting to him. And Luke records this in chapter 9. I won't refer to Mark's. He records it in chapter 8. Now, now John doesn't record this, but John records half of his gospel is about that last night, the last supper, and through the crucifixion and his his appearing to them and, you know, the, the commissioning of them. Half of John's gospel is about this. A third of Matthew and and Luke, about a fourth of them, and Mark about a third is about the passion. But look at Mark 8, 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed after three days. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him out. I think the plainly applies to not just that announcement, but what was going to really happen to him. And he called the crowd to him right after that in verse 34. I'm skipping to verse 34 because I think this is even more clarification on what Jesus was talking to them about. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. I I just think that they knew that. They knew what he was talking about. The starus, the stake. uh, It was equivalent to hanging on a tree, which they, in Deuteronomy, that anybody that was hung on a tree was considered cursed by God. And they were not they were not supposed to be allowed to to stay overnight in that condition. They're supposed to be taken down. But they knew that that was like you can't you can't be a symbol of being cursed. You've come. You're the Messiah. You can't you can't function as the absorption of a curse, not a curse from God. So this was part of their difficulty in in doing all of this. He said, whoever saves their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life from me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? And what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Him saying that, or, or that Mark and Matthew said that Jesus spoke plainly about how he was going to die. Ravi Zacharias was asked to speak at the United Nations prayer 
a day of prayer, the morning of prayer. I didn't know they had that. But uh, they, they do have kind of like a prayer breakfast. Back in September, he was asked to speak. And it's kind of like you got a lot of different people here, a lot of different cultures, a lot of different religions. You know, just kind of be, you know, noncommittal about being, talking about Jesus. And they wanted him to talk about moralism in a relativistic world. Well, he decided to speak on four realities that faces every person. And those realities are justice, love, forgiveness, and evil. And so he talked about those four realities. And he got to this point. He says, you're a body that wants justice in the world. You're a body that wants to deal with evil. But which of you have had have has not longed for forgiveness when you're wrong. Which of you has not really wanted forgiveness when you know you're wrong? Which of you will deny the reality of love that you hungered for from your parents or your spouse or whatever? Ladies and gentlemen, love, justice, evil, and forgiveness. There's only one place where they all converge, and that's at the cross of Jesus. At the cross of Christ. There he did it. He would later say the response was that ambassadors lined up. Many of them with tears in their eyes. And one of them says, I came all the way to the UN. So that I can try to understand this. Because there's a hunger in the souls of people. For those realities to converge. Who doesn't want justice? Who doesn't want love? Who doesn't want forgiveness? And who doesn't want to see evil exterminated? And he says all of those realities converge at the cross of Christ. The exercise of the mind in relation to the cross is that we have to consider what goes into that study. We have to read more about the cross, do we not? I think we're kind of like, we embrace the cross. There's a sin, sentimentality to the cross. Why, why was the cross necessary? You know, uh, what would Jesus do? You know, the, the acrostic. I said, why would Jesus die? Is a better question. Not what just what he do. Why, would, why did Christ die? Um, and I took some material from a Ravi Zacharias podcast. And I had to listen four times to that podcast to make sense of it. Because he's like, whew, whew. I was like, okay, back it up. You know, that little 15 second thing, I kept hitting it. <laughs> Wait a minute, I'm not getting that. Wait a minute. And then in another podcast, he mentioned Mortimer Adler. And um, so here I go off seeing about that and I hear this guy talking about I think he wrote a book on how to read a book anybody familiar with that how to read a book and he says if you read a book once you should read it three times because you just can't get it on one time and then he said I shared some of this at staff meeting then he said he he limits himself to reading 20 pages per hour 
Because he said he wants to look at every word and look at every sentence and try to understand it. I thought, wow, that's, that's, I feel a lot better about my reading speed. But I, I think when we want to learn something, don't we want to be exposed to it as much as we can? And if we're not stretched, where's our learning? If we only go over that that we already know, what are we learning? It's a valid point, is it not? If something doesn't challenge us, how can we move beyond where we are? If we don't reconstruct our approach to how we spend our time, we will remain at the place we are, and that is a travesty. Because God has written many times in his word how he wants us to grow. How he wants his body to grow. That's the whole gifts of the ministry. That there would be an equipping of the people of God so that they could better deal with life. So they'd be stronger individually. I'll finish with this. Um, One of the great hymns that Fanny Crosby wrote was Jesus keep me near the cross I think she wrote this in 1869 1869 she was blind of course but she had a gift for prose and uh, P.P. Bliss a good friend of hers was pretty good with music so they, they combined she would write the poems and he would put it to music Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain. Free to all a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. And you know the course. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever. Till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. You know, this is a person that had not seen the cross, not seen the symbol, but she knew the reality of it, that there is where our sins were taken care of. There is where the power of sin was broken. There is where the fear of death died because he ripped it apart from the unknown because he stepped into that reality And came back out of it to tell you it's going to be okay. You just keep your trust in him. It's going to be okay. Stott speaks again of the turning point of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Who was a great preacher in the United Kingdom following World War II. But in 1929 he said his life changed completely. He went to preach at this place in South Wales. And a minister in the congregation came up to him at the end of his message and says you know it seems that the cross and the 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 death of Jesus has very little place in your preaching well that that might could hurt somebody's feelings but what he how he responded to that by saying the cross and the work of Christ must not have much of a place in your preaching he went to his a used bookstore, this is 1929, used bookstore, and he bought the two most profound works on the cross, on the atonement. And it was 
R.W. Dale's The Atonement, written in 1875, and James Denny's The Death of Christ, written in 1903. When he got home, he he told his wife he didn't want to have lunch. He went back into his quarters, and he stayed there, and she got worried about him. He actually called someone to see if they'll maybe need a doctor. He's acting strange. But he came out, and he said, I've discovered the real reason of the gospel, the real heart of the gospel, and it is the death of Jesus. And from that point on, the cross not only dominated the New Testament, dominated Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' ministry. I'll close with this because this is kind of a neat because I still pray for Russ and Sammy, my Muslim buddies. And again, I don't know if they consider me their buddy, but I consider them my friends. But Samuel Zwemer, American missionary to the Muslim world for years, really was the apostle. He was one of the first missionaries to really take on the task of going into their domain and preaching the gospel. And he said something of this nature. If the cross of Christ is anything to the mind, it is surely everything. If we think of it at all, if it has any value... It has profound reality, the most profound reality and the greatest mystery. And he talks about a Muslim man that converted to Christianity, converted to Jesus. And the Muslim missionary, see, they they don't believe that Jesus died on the cross. And, uh, you know, Russ and I had this conversation at Starbucks not long ago. And he said, well, you know, we, we got the same God, you know, your God and my God. I said, no, we don't. <laughs> and I said, Jesus died on the cross. You don't believe that. But it's the essence of our faith. We don't have a faith without the cross and the resurrection. We, we, we have nothing. Our whole faith depends on that. So we can't have compatibility. These cannot, you know merged together as a whole and uh, I just kept telling him that Jesus died for you he died for your sins as much as Muslims think that's foolishness it's a stumbling block many of them that come to the Lord said it, there was, it became irresistibly drawing them isn't it true that he says the gospel is the power of God into salvation it does not matter what someone's I have firm belief that God is drawing Russ to him and Sammy to him. Who knows, they might already have gotten a revelation of Jesus. But the gospel, can you can you fathom another solution better than Jesus dying for our wrong? Is there a better scenario for people who know when they're wrong that they need forgiveness and to know that it was secured for them by the perfect one, the sinless one, dying on the cross for us. So that we, we were not pressed to make it happen on our own. <laughs> we couldn't do it. We can't undo our wrongs. But he paid for all of them. All of them. What a great, what a great, that is good news, isn't it? To tell, you know, they might not even believe it, but I was like, I'm going to tell them, you know, Jesus died for your sins and he was raised from the dead 
And, uh, of course, they, they, they are really all over the map when it comes to that. But they are, they're being drawn by the hundreds. And look at what's happening in Iran. There is a move of God, not politically. There is a move of God spiritually in that nation. That people are coming to faith in Christ. And may the kingdom of God come into places where we've been praying for people. We've been praying for their salvation. We've been praying for family members. You just believe that God is actively in pursuit of them. And he has his eyes on them and he wants to save them. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves this. Whoever you're praying for, whoever's close to you, whoever you love, you can never love them more than God loves them. And you can never, you and I can never want them to know him more than he wants them to know him. And so you hold steady because he loves to reach the tough ones. I know. I saw one happen right in my own family. So let's stand together.